Hello, and welcome to my podcast, The Lotus in the Fire. I'm Joseph Bobro. Today I have the pleasure of welcoming Kazu Haga, one of today's bright lights in the practice and principles of contemporary nonviolent direct action. Here is how his collaborator and friend, Chris Moore Backman, spoke of Kazu and Kazu's new book, Healing Resistance. Whether he's accompanying us behind prison walls, on walking pilgrimage with Buddhist monastics, or into the streets for head-on direct action, Kazuhaga seamlessly illustrates the indivisibility of personal and societal transformation and our desperate need for both at this pivotal moment in history. We are fortunate to receive this inspiring new offering from one of the most powerful contemporary thinkers and doers in the field of nonviolent social change. Welcome, Kazuhaga, to The Lotus in the Fire. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's good to have this opportunity to to meet with you. Can you tell us about uh, your path to nonviolent social action? And I'm particularly interested if, if there might be a question that has been animating your path and your work and when that maybe began. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's been quite a journey. Um, it, I guess it started when I was 17 years old. At the, at the time in my life, I had uh, dropped out of high school when I was 15. I was struggling with a lot of just, um, yeah, I was not in a good place in my life. And I oftentimes talk about how at that moment in my life, had I met a military recruiter, I could have gone off to war. Had I met a cult leader, I would have joined a cult. Um, if I lived in a big urban setting, I might have joined a gang. Like it would have been, you know, any anyone who reached their hand out first, like whoever got to me first and gave me a sense of community and purpose, I would have just gravitated towards. But luckily for myself, I met a group of Buddhist monastics. Um, there's a Japanese Buddhist order called Nipponza Myohoji, and they had a temple right next to the town where I lived. And this is a, a, a group of Buddhists who's really dedicated to nonviolence and social change work. And so they were organizing a walking pilgrimage. They were going to walk from Massachusetts, where their temple was, where I lived, all the way down the coast to New Orleans, and then eventually down the coast of Africa to retrace the, the slave, pa- uh, the Middle Passage. And the, the thing was called the Interfaith Pilgrimage of the Middle Passage. And it was a healing journey with the understanding that if we're going to deal with the impact of racism in this country today, then we have to go all the way back. And we have to heal from the legacy of the genocide of indigenous peoples and the enslavement of African peoples. And so it was a, a spiritual pilgrimage and an attempt to, to um, unpack that legacy and really begin the process of healing from it. And so, you know, I was just a 17-year-old kid who was drinking and getting high every day and was just bored and was looking for something. And I heard about this pilgrimage about a week before it started. I thought it was a, a cool idea, knew nothing about it, knew nothing about activism, um, but it was just an opportunity to, to do something different. And I told my mom that I would check it out for a week and I ended up leaving home for a year and a half. And so I ended up going all the way to New Orleans and then ended up living in their monasteries in India and Nepal for a year, studying Buddhism, studying nonviolence. So that was my introduction to all of this work. And I think if there's been one kind of guiding question that I've been trying to 
understand since that time is what does the intersection of social action and spirituality really look like? Because I actually find that even in communities where there's talk of that intersection, it's really only lip service. Like there's communities where there's spiritual practice happening um, and then conversations about activism or there's activism happening. And then there's conversations that happen about spirituality on the side. Um, but I find that it's really rare to find communities that are really deeply engaged in both and see both as one and the same thing. So I feel like that's been the question that that's been guiding me for 20 years is to, to figure out what that can actually look like. And it seems that it's taken you through and to the experience of trauma. Um, yeah. And incorporating um, personal healing and growth uh, as well as collective healing from trauma and growth. Would you like to say a little bit about that? Yeah, I could say a lot about that. Um, it's really the... Well, say, say, kind of say a lot about it. <laughs> it's kind of the, the the growing edge of the work that I'm doing right now. I'm actually working on my second book, which is going to be called Fierce Vulnerability. And a lot of the this idea of fierce vulnerability is is kind of taking the the age old lineages of nonviolence and infusing it with some of the newer sciences around trauma healing. Because you know I'm a nonviolence trainer and a nonviolence practitioner, and really have been trained in the legacy of Dr. King and his work. Uh, my colleague has been trained and 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 has been a longtime practitioner and a student of Gandhi's work. But you know, when Gandhi was leading his movement, when King was leading his movement, trauma healing wasn't a thing that existed, right? So now that there's been so much development around the science of trauma healing, I think it's important that we infuse it with these lineages of nonviolence. And a lot of what I'm exploring is looking at things like nonviolent direct action, mm -hmm. like if we can view nonviolent direct action as a modality of collective trauma healing, then what could it look like? You know, my, I, I just shared my experience with the interfaith pilgrimage of the middle passage, you know, having experienced things like that and really explored the, the legacy of slavery. I am convinced that as a nation called the United States of America, we collectively have trauma. Right? Like we've been traumatized by centuries and centuries of systemic violence and nonviolence and political resistance work at its best is an attempt to heal that collective trauma. And I've learned a lot about trauma healing through both my own work of, of kind of going back and healing a lot of my own childhood traumas, but also doing restorative justice and trauma healing work in the prisons. Um, facilitating dialogues between incarcerated people and the people that they've harmed. You know, I've learned a lot about what it takes to heal trauma. And, you know, in like interpersonal trauma healing settings, we would never go into people who have experienced harm and people who have experienced trauma and start pointing our fingers and saying, you're a bad person, right? That is not conducive to trauma healing. And yet I find that in a lot of political resistance movements, that's what we do, is we go out and engage in direct action and we point the finger and say, you all are the problem. And we, we're, we're trying to use nonviolence to leverage power, and we're going to use this power to shove change down your throat. And so to me, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I am aware that in nonviolence, we teach that 
the more escalated the level of violence is and the more escalated the level of tension is, the more escalated our nonviolent response to that violence and our response to that tension has to be, right? So like in the Black Lives Matter movement, filling out a petition is not the appropriate response because you're responding to violence that is so heightened, right? If we look at the, the climate crisis, filling out a petition is not the appropriate response because the level of violence is so heightened. So we need to escalate our responses to these instances of harm. But one thing that I've noticed is that the more we escalate our tactics of nonviolent direct action, the more we also tend to escalate this binary, polarized, black and white, right versus wrong worldview. And to me, it's that sense of othering and that sense of separation and that movement away from true interdependence that is actually at the heart of all of the destruction, right? So how can we escalate our responses to violence while doubling down on a commitment to healing and doubling down on this deep knowing of interdependence and interbeing? Um, so yeah, that's, that's a lot of what we're trying to explore with, my, with, with the work that, that I'm involved in these days. Mm-hmm. You know, it reminds me, Kazu, of... Uh, I- I worked with uh, a lot of Iraq and Afghanistan veterans uh, a number of years ago. And one of the things we did was to create community forums where they could share their stories and experiences and traumas uh, with the civilian world who they held with a lot of suspicion uh, and who actually this go around in contrast to Vietnam were were really interested in their experience. So what started to happen was as the veterans talked about their experience, the civilians could unpack the trauma of being part of the Iraq and Afghanistan war for umpteen years um, and feeling like they didn't have a say-so in our going to war and that they were feeling things too. And there were a number of um, exchanges between civilians and veterans and also between veteran kids of veteran families and kids of civilian families who could share their experience. Um, say a little bit, if, if you wouldn't mind, or a lot, uh, that's just a phrase I use a little bit, um, about the difference between nonviolence with a hyphen and without a hyphen. Yeah, so this is something that I learned from a philosophy called Kingian nonviolence, which comes out of the teachings of Dr. King um, and is a philosophy that's really been the foundation of my work for the last 10 years. And within that world, we make a, a big distinction between nonviolence spelt with a hyphen and nonviolence without the hyphen. Because when you put the hyphen in the word, it separates the word and non-hyphen violence is essentially two words that says something is not violent, right? Something is the absence of violence. And I always say that this understanding that non-violence is simply about not being violent is one of the most biggest and, and, and most dangerous misunderstandings of the idea of non-violence. And the story that I oftentimes share is this is something that happened about 10 years ago. I was taking a nap in my apartment and I was woken up by a commotion that was happening right outside of my window. And it was a couple who was arguing. And I live in a neighborhood where people are yelling and screaming pretty much consistently throughout the day. So I was just trying to ignore it and go back to sleep. 
But this fight kept getting louder and louder and it kept getting worse. And I finally looked outside my window and right below my window, there was a woman on the ground who was getting beat and she was screaming for help. So I jumped up out of my bed and I ran downstairs. I opened up the gate and by this point they had gone across the street and it was still going on. So I ran across the street and I managed to break up this fight. And by the time I had gotten down there, about 15 of my neighbors had heard the commotion and they had all also come outside and they were just standing around watching this woman get beat. And I always argue that all of my neighbors who were just standing around watching this woman get beat were practicing non-hyphen violence in the sense that they weren't being violent, right? They were being explicitly not violent. They weren't contributing in any direct way. They weren't throwing the punches. They weren't throwing the kicks. And this is the dynamic that we see a lot in our society today when we see the police killing unarmed black people. Some people turn the other um, other way and say, well, that's none of my business. Uh, or they see cl the climate crisis happening and they turn away and say, well, that's none of my business. It doesn't affect me. They see rises in homelessness and they say, it's none of my business. And that's us practicing non-hyphen violence, right? It's easy to be a bystander, but true nonviolence isn't about what not to do. It's about what you're going to do in the face of violence. When you see violence, when you see harm, when you see suffering, what are you going to do to really put yourself into that situation and try to help transform that situation and bring about healing and bring about reconciliation? You know, it makes me think of when the Iraq war started. Um, there was just a devastating feeling in social action and peace circles and the Buddhist community, all of which I'm, uh, I, I kind of am part of. And I, I would get invited to give some talks about how to, how to deal with it, how to manage it, what the next steps are. And there seemed to be this concern on the part of many that we mustn't respond with violence. Um, it wasn't stated that way. We must respond with love, not force. And there was something that just rubbed me the wrong way about it. It just, you know, apropos of what you were saying, uh, love uh, has a tremendous force to it. And I'm, I'm sure that, uh, that you, you would agree, and from your study and teaching of Kingian nonviolence, I mean, it seems to me that that was such a large part of his, his embodied teaching, is that love is a force. It's a force for change, and it, it moves things around. It's not just the absence of war. Peace isn't just the absence of war, and nonviolence is not just the absence of violence. Um, I just thought I'd, I'd share that. There's something in the activist mind that, that cuts out the power, that cuts out the forcefulness of it. Yeah, one of my favorite quotes by Dr. King is when he says that power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. And I think that's the, the, the problem that a lot of social movements have is sometimes we are able to harness power, but we do it in the absence of love. So even in so-called nonviolent movements, again, we use these nonviolent tactics that are without forms of physical violence, 
And we use these movements to gain power, but then we use that power to try to shove change down the throats of the other side. And it can be reckless and it can be destructive. And on the other hand, I see in a lot of like spiritual communities and communities of faith that they're practicing a lot of deep love for all people, but they're doing it in a way that doesn't actually have the power to challenge the structures that are causing so much harm in our communities. And so it becomes this sentimental anemic love that Dr. King talked about. And, you know, we have to remember that Dr. King, towards the end of his life, was organizing the Poor People's Campaign. And he said of the Poor People's Campaign that he was trying to, you know, mobilize people to create an encampment of poor people on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. And he wanted to use that encampment as the hub of operations for a, a campaign of mass civil disobedience that would, quote, cripple the infrastructure of Washington, D.C. to demand billions of dollars from the federal government to fight poverty, right? And he believed in a movement that was nonviolent, but was as uh, disruptive and dislocative as a riot. So he believed that the power of love can be as forceful and as disruptive as violence can. And so I think we do need to reclaim that, that kind of assertiveness of nonviolence while doubling down on the, on the love of it. It seems to me that that, that process is critically important. I, I really agree with you and that it has to go through both grief, but also righteous anger. It needs to travel through those and sort of recruit some of those energies that are siphoned off. Yeah, 100%. I've been thinking a lot about rage these days. And I actually haven't read um, Lama Rod Owens' new book on, on love and rage. I know a lot of people are talking about it. So that's definitely on my list. But, you know, I've been thinking about how, again, in, in a lot of so-called nonviolent movements, we can be very quick to dismiss and even place judgment on people's expression of rage. And I think we need to recognize, especially for marginalized communities, that that rage is, it's not only righteous, but it's like, well, why wouldn't people be filled with rage after 400, 500 years of systemic violence against their communities? And I think it's really important that we create spaces to honor that rage. But I think for me, one thing that I see is you know, we need spaces for people to be able to release their rage in safe containers, right? We need to be able to honor and to hold that rage. And in, in my view, like a street demonstration is just not the place that's the, the uh, is, is not a place that's the, it's conducive to healing rage, right? Because you're expressing rage, which leaves you vulnerable and then if you get tear gassed and arrested while you're going through that process of feeling into that rage, it can be re-traumatizing for you. And so, you know, this isn't uh, to cast any judgment on expressions of rage in any spaces, but I think as a movement, we need to do a better job of creating safe containers where people can release that rage and really embody that rage so that when we're going into street demonstrations, we have already done some processing of that so that we can kind of call on our righteous indignation in skillful ways and not just leave ourselves wide open to being re-traumatized by the police or by whatever might happen in those actions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the, uh, the East Point Peace Academy. 
what you guys are doing, a little bit about the history, your founding of it, co-founding of it. Yeah, the Eastmont Peace Academy is the the kind of organizational home where I do most of my work. And it's a play on words of the military academy at West Point, right? Uh, it's, <laughs> it's this understanding that as much as the military invests in training for war, that we need to invest in training for peace, that peacemaking, transformation, conflict reconciliation, these are not easy things, especially when we live in a culture that is so infused with violence and has been since the founding of this country. Like it's not an easy thing that's just going to happen overnight or happen spontaneously, right? Um, you know, we know with anyone who has a meditation practice, the instruction of um, be aware of your breath is such a simple instruction, but it takes years and decades of practice to really be able to continue to be aware of our breath in each moment. It takes training. And, you know, I oftentimes talk about nonviolence, not as a thing to become, but as a practice in the same way that martial arts or meditation is a practice, no matter how long you practice karate, no matter how long you've been a meditator, you don't become meditation. You don't become karate. And in the same way, nonviolence isn't a thing to become as much as it's a thing that we practice every single day so that we can really embody these teachings, embody this philosophy so that when we're in the midst of a conflict, it becomes our new default. It becomes our new muscle memory. And so we believe in the importance of training and preparation so that we can try to embody nonviolence in every interaction and everything that we do. My old teacher, Aitken Roshi, said that we're all agents of compassion. So you're, you're, you're providing some, some training for these agents of compassion for the bodhisattvas to... Um, do their work. That's right. Uh, tell us about your rather new book, not totally new, but tell us about Healing Resistance. Yeah, thank you. Um, and if you the, wish, you can read a little something from it or just talk about it up to you. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, yeah, it's a book that came out this past January, um, and it's really an exploration of the philosophy of Kingian nonviolence, just told through the story of my life and, and my experiences, both uh, in my own personal life, in the restorative justice work that I've been doing in the prisons, as well as in social justice movements. Um, and it, it, again, kind of speaks to the idea that political resistance work at its best should be healing. It should be healing for us to be engaged in political resistance work, and it should be done with the spirit of trying to heal relationships between communities. And I oftentimes don't see that happening in a lot of social justice movements. I think because we all have so much trauma and that trauma just gets perpetuated and, and, and just goes in cycles. I've seen a lot of people engage in social justice movements and become re-traumatized because of a lot of the toxic culture that oftentimes happens in social justice movements. And I've also seen movements where, again, we use quote unquote nonviolent tactics, but I feel like we do it in a way that increases polarization and moves us further away from this idea of beloved community and moves us further away from interdependence. Um, you know, one of the stories that I write about in my book is 
the East Point Peace Academy, we have teams of nonviolence trainers in several different prisons throughout California. Uh, these are all incarcerated people. And one of our incarcerated trainers, Bilgi, who is currently incarcerated at the Correctional Training Facility in Soledad, California, he said once that resolving a conflict is about fixing issues and reconciling a conflict is about repairing relationships. And oftentimes in our movements and in our kind of conflict transformation spaces, we only go so far as to think about how we fix the issue. Right. So like, what is the new policy that we need to change? What is the piece of legislation that we need to introduce so that we can fix this issue? But we don't go far enough. We don't work on repairing the relationships between communities that are at odds and sometimes have been at odds for hundreds of years. And if we're not working on healing those relationships, then we may resolve one issue but the conflict still exists and it's only going to surface on another issue over here at a later point. And so, you know, how do we engage in political resistance movements that is not only about fixing issues, but is about repairing harm and repairing relationships and, and really is committed to the healing of separation and the healing of othering um, because that is at the core of so much of the trauma that we all experience. What is the difference, if any, between collective and community and the beloved community? Yeah, you know, beloved community is a term that was coined by a, a theologian named Josiah Royce, and it was popularized by Dr. King. And when we talk about beloved community in our workshops, people oftentimes say, oh, well, like my beloved community is my community of faith or my beloved community is my family, or my beloved community is the community of activists that I do my work with. And there's a partial truth in that, but I always wanna challenge people to think about it a little bit deeper because to me, the work of building beloved community is not about loving the people that are easy to love, right? It's not about being in community with the people that are already in community with you. The work of building beloved community is about expanding the idea of who is in our community and by trying to cultivate love and understanding and compassion for the people that, that we are not hanging out with, right? For the people that are harder to love, the people that we disagree with. And so I think like the communities that we are already in loving relationships with may be loving communities. But when Dr. King talked about beloved community, it, it again goes back to this idea of interdependence. I know that in a lot of activist communities, we give oftentimes lip service to things like justice for all people, and we give lip service to interdependence, and we give lip service to solidarity. You know, there's a, a beautiful quote that comes out of the Aboriginal peoples of Australia that says that if you have come here to save me, you're wasting your time. But if you have come here because your liberation is bound with mine, then we can walk together. And that's a quote that's like really popular in a lot of leftist spaces. But I don't know how many people really believe that, right? I oftentimes talk about how I think a lot of people believe that the universe weaves separate webs of interdependence based on political affiliation. Right? What, do you my think, what do you think makes it so hard to get that they co-arise? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it, again, has to do with the fact that so many of us have 
trauma that we have not been able to move through, right? When our bodies are experiencing trauma, one of the things that happens is that we start seeing things in black and white. Like when we're operating from our trauma response, we're operating from our survival instincts. And when you're operating from our survival instincts, everything is either dangerous or it's not. And it's important to be able to see things that way because you need to like identify the danger and run away from it or fight back or whatever it is. And so we lose our ability to see nuance and everything becomes good or bad. Everything becomes black or white. And so I think the more that we as individuals and as collectives can heal through our trauma, that is sometimes not just ours, but it's generations and generations in the making, the more we can heal through our trauma, the more we're able to, to see the nuance and the more we're able to see the, the interdependence of all beings. So I think that's, that's a really core part of the work that we need to do in social change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're developing a vision uh, that integrates political social change with personal and collective emotional and trauma-related change. And along with that integration, there's an integration between um, personal and, and social change. That's to say, can we walk the talk? And where does that become challenging? How do we work with those challenges? How do we invite others to help us with our challenges? Say a little bit about your ongoing wrestling and integration with personal and social change. Yeah. You know, I, I think a lot about shame because shame, shame is mm-hmm. so, uh, such a kind of critical component of trauma. And there's a beautiful quote that I believe comes from Brene Brown, who says that shame derives its power from being unspoken. And when we're not able to speak to the things that we're most ashamed of, then it ends up controlling our lives and it manifests as as trauma and, and, and a lot of other things. And I think one of the things that we're trying to do at a social scale is to open up a conversation about the things that this country has shame around. Like this country should be ashamed of its legacy of slavery and it should be ashamed of what's happening on the US-Mexico border. And it should be ashamed of what's happening in the prisons in this country. And we need to open up a conversation about that. And in order for us to hold space for the nation to begin to talk about these things, then we need to have done that work for ourselves, right? So I've been doing a lot of work on trying to speak to the things where that I have shame around a lot of my childhood traumas, because I know that the more I'm able to heal through my shame and my personal traumas, the more I'm able to hold space for other people to move through their traumas. Right. And, and if I'm still holding a lot of unhealed trauma and if I'm not able to speak to my own shame, then I'm not really in a space to hold that space for other people, never mind the nation. Right. So I think as, as people who are engaged in social change work, the more we can kind of heal through our own trauma, the more we're able to hold space for others and for the nation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Who's your favorite Boston Celtic of all time? <laughs> of all time. Oh, that is tough. Yeah. So uh, for people who read my book, you know that I'm a diehard Celtics fan. I have a Celtics tattoo on my shoulder. I watch almost all their games. Um, right now, I'm in love with the entire team. But, um, you know, it's hard not to go with someone like Bill Russell, who is not only amongst the most winningest um, players in history, but was a fierce advocate for civil rights. Right. Was was someone who really used the platform that he had to not only speak about basketball, but to speak about the instances, issues of injustice that is happening in this country. And it's been really beautiful. Um, the NBA season just recently restarted. It's been beautiful to watch how the NBA and the players have been able to use that platform to really continue the conversation around Black Lives Matter um, there's a Celtic player named Marcus Smart, who is one of my favorite players right now. Um, he recently had a press conference where every single question that the media asked him, he responded with justice for Breonna Taylor. And so it's been really beautiful to watch all these players um, remind us that, you know, oftentimes we watch things like basketball as a distraction from everything that's going on. But now is not the time to be distracted. So that's been really beautiful to watch. Which team do you hate? Oh, the Lakers. Oh, there's, there's no I mean, I, you know, I was raised in Massachusetts as a Celtic fan. So um, I, I really struggle holding the Los Angeles Lakers as part of beloved community. But that's part of my practice. It must be tough for you with LeBron James being so outspoken and so expressing himself so eloquently and powerfully. Um, yeah, you know, I definitely have a lot of respect for LeBron, not only as a player, but because he has always been an outspoken advocate on, on social issues. But um, I have no problem rooting against his team. <laughs> you, 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 you know how to how to hate in a in a nonviolent way. <laughs> yeah, you know, my, my friend Sierra says that beloved community is a really big place. And some people can be all the way over there in beloved community, but they're still part of beloved community, you know? And, and so I think that's one of the important things to remember is, you know, there's of course people that we all struggle having compassion for, but it's not like you have to become best friends with everybody. That's not what we're asking, right? It's just to, to try to remember the, the sanctity and the dignity of all life. And it doesn't mean that we don't hold individuals accountable Right. It doesn't mean that that um, that we have to like invite people over for for our family holidays and things like that. Um, but to try to remember that if someone is causing harm, it's probably because they have a significant deal of harm that they haven't able to, to, to heal through. You know, when I look at somebody like Donald Trump, I see a like a broken child. Right, who has such a gaping hole in, in his heart that he's never been able to heal through. And while I will do everything I can to organize and resist all of the policies that he's pushing through and the, the kind of cultural norms that he's, he's, he's pushing, I can hold some compassion in my heart for how broken I feel like he is as a human being and how far he is from his own sense of humanity. And that's what we're asking for. Mm-hmm. So if you love the Celtics and you like a good matchup, then you you don't mind. You in fact you enjoy competition. Uh, I understand that uh, that you also do uh, mixed martial arts. 
<laughs> yeah, I haven't been a practitioner of mixed martial arts in some time, but I am still a fan of it. And, you know, that's something that I actually do have some conflict about um, because mixed martial arts is a little bit different than traditional martial arts. I think traditional martial arts um, incorporates even like, you know, if you look at something like Aikido, there's a spiritual component to it. There's a self-discipline component to it. And I think mixed martial arts sometimes goes a little bit too far in glorifying violence. But again, I do think there's a lot that we can learn from. Like, I know that when I practice martial arts, I become more confident in my ability to be engaged in physical confrontations. And the more I'm comfortable with the idea of physical confrontations, the less likely I am in actually being in one, right? Like if a conflict gets really heated, mm -hmm. if I'm comfortable and confident in my ability to be in a physical confrontation, I'm less likely to panic. And the less likely I am to panic, the more I'm able to stay grounded and the more I'm, I'm able to, to, to like breathe and think things through. And so I think there's a lot that we can learn from martial arts uh, that's, that's relevant to nonviolence. What, what's the little problem you sometimes have with it or with, with well, again, with, you... with mixed martial arts in particular, I think it, it sometimes veers away from the spiritual discipline of it and goes a little bit too far into just glorifying violence and making it fun to inflict harm, right? Traditionally in, in martial arts, the intention isn't to inflict harm. Right. Um, so I, I think there's, there's some line that MMA oftentimes crosses, but, um, yeah. So, so again, I still have conflicts about it, but I do still enjoy watching an MMA fight every now and then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, could you tell us some of the, uh, the elements of Kingi and nonviolence that, uh, that are important to know? Yeah, there's three main components and, and the book healing resistance has these three main chunks. Uh, one of it is, a deep study and analysis in the nature of human conflict. We teach that things like yelling and fighting are not conflicts. They're things that happen when a conflict is mismanaged. So the more we can understand the nature of conflict, the more we can have skillful responses to it. Um, and then there's what's called the six principles of Kingian nonviolence, which are the, the six underlying principles that guide our responses to conflict. And the six principles is really what is at the at the core of the teachings of Kingian nonviolence. Um, and then there's what is called the six the six steps of Kingian nonviolence, which is about how to take all of the principles and, and our understanding and analysis of conflict and apply them, whether it's um, in the process of organizing a nonviolent campaign for social change or about how we move through an interpersonal conflict. It's really about the, the kind of step by step how to's of how to engage in conflict. Mm -hmm. There's a visual model that uh, I understand Gandhi used um, that has three parts that, uh, that you like to speak about. Could you tell us about that? I found it really intriguing. Yeah, it's a super helpful model that actually Gandhi himself didn't utilize, but it's people who... Uh, studied the work of Gandhi and kind of retroactively identified these three as the three components that Gandhi was always working on. And one is um, what he called self-purification. So for him, a lot of that was his meditation and prayer practice. And what I would describe now as a lot of the trauma healing work, like the work that we're doing to purify our own hearts 
from the violence and the self-hatred and the resentment and all of these things that we hold so that we can be in better alignment and in better integrity with our value systems. And then there's the work of constructive program, which is about building the alternative structures and support systems that support what our communities actually need. Like we don't need the state's permission to take care of our own communities. And it's been beautiful to see a lot of mutual aid networks pop up in times of COVID because we have seen that the state is actually not capable of taking care of all of our communities. And so it's up to us to take care of our communities. So that's everything from um, you know, building a community garden to uh, holding space for people to, to process their grief outside of the context of professionalized therapy and things like that. Uh, and then there's the work of Satyagraha, which is the work of political resistance. And it's when we can build movements that really infuses all three of these things and sees all three of these uh, components of work as one in the same that we can create transformative change. And my colleague, Chris Moore-Backman, wrote a book called The Gandhian Iceberg that does a deep dive into, into those three components that I would highly recommend for everyone. And he uses the iceberg, doesn't he, as an image or a model of those three. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah. So traditionally, when people first started talking about these three components of self-purification, um, uh, uh, constructive program and satyagraha, it was oftentimes viewed as a Venn diagram. But Chris says that if you really study the work of Gandhi, he would have seen it much more like an iceberg. Partially because the Venn diagram almost suggests that these are three separate things that are coming together at the middle, but Gandhi viewed it as one of the, it's the same thing, right? Like one iceberg is just, it's all made out of the same water. But also he says that um, for Gandhi, the work of self-purification would have been the part of the iceberg that's beneath the surface. It's actually the biggest part of the iceberg. And because it's beneath the surface of the water, you don't see it as much. But for him, the majority of the work of nonviolence was about the work of self-purification. And then the majority of the, the iceberg that you see that's above the surface is the work of constructive program, right? Like the external manifestation of nonviolence is really about supporting our communities and building the structures that we need to support our communities. And he says that, the more successful we are in building alternative structures that allow us to kind of remove our own participation from these institutions that perpetuate violence, then those institutions are going to feel threatened by that. So they're going to come and try to destroy the constructive programs that we're building. And so that's when you resist, right? You resist to protect the things that you're building. Um, and so it's actually the smallest part of the iceberg. It's just the tip of the iceberg. But because it's at the very tip of the iceberg, from the farthest point out, it's the easiest part of the iceberg to see. So when we look back at historical movements, we typically only look at the protests and the demonstrations, and we don't see the rest of the iceberg. Um, so the iceberg model is a, is a really helpful uh, way to look at those three components. Yeah, I think it's terrific. And so if we look at a particular activist, let's say, take, take you, uh, that iceberg would 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 fit. Uh, there are your resistance activities, there are your alternative programming that you're doing, and then there's all the deep down work that you continue to do on yourself, keeping your heart supple, steady, open. And I think when we, when we then uh, express 
our compassion in palpable ways. It's all that stuff on the bottom that comes through and makes all the difference. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the one thing I will add to that, though, is this is something that I don't think Chris wrote about in his book, uh, The Gandhian Iceberg, but he has been talking a lot about it, is that the level of violence in our society today, particularly around the climate crisis, is so heightened that we actually need to engage in the direct action and the satyagraha component of the iceberg a lot more than we ever have. And in fact, like the institutions of violence are so pervasive in our culture that our ability to truly engage in revolutionary self-purification work and revolutionary constructive, constructive program work is so limited. But we're so like we're swimming in so much injustice that we don't even realize it. And so he really encourages all of us to think about how we are either engaging in direct action work or supporting direct action work because we've never had been lived in a time when the need for that satyagraha work has been has been greater. Mm-hmm. Is there any story or any? issue that we haven't touched on that you'd uh, that you'd like to speak about um yeah there's probably a lot but um you know i'll just kind of come back to where we started from uh, which is that you know in the last few months of the covid crisis i'm seeing a lot of manifestations of trauma right both on on individual levels with people and friends that I connect with, as well as collectively. And I think we're seeing in the world a lot of trauma response, right? Things getting really escalated, everything becoming black and white. You're either with us or you're against us, Uh, our inability to see nuance. And these are all like trauma responses that um, it's, it's easy to see individually with someone who has a lot of unhealed trauma, but we're also seeing collectively in our movement spaces, right? Like a lot of the individual responses to trauma are manifesting at scale on, on, on both, not just in social movements, but from the left, from the right, like everyone, like we're, we're so polarized right now. And I think it's a real hard tension because there's so much opportunity and urgency in this moment. But like the, the, the tension of, I wrote an article years ago that was called the urgency of slowing down, mm. right? Like how do we meet this urgency while remembering to take deep, slow breaths in our responses to that moment of urgency? And so I think, you know, it's really important for all of us to be thinking about like, how can we be in the streets? How can we take this opportunity to really engage in the struggle for systemic change? It's not enough for all of us just to sit on our cushions and cultivate love. We need that love with power that Dr. King talked about. But as my friend Emma, who is a nonviolence trainer, oftentimes reminds us that there's always time to take a breath. That even if you're out in the streets and you're seeing riot police running towards you, you still have time to take a breath. So I think, like, how do we hold that tension of, acknowledging the need to be in the streets and and pushing for justice and pushing for systemic change while remembering to breathe. Um, I think it's, it's something that we all need to be thinking about right now. I agree. I, I've been thinking lately that to take a full breath and exhale long and slow 
is an act of resistance. Absolutely. It's, it's helping us resist that kind of binary us versus them worldview. One of my teachers says that the right, wrong us versus them worldview is the most pervasive way that our minds have been colonized by the state. And so by taking that deep breath, we are resisting that colonization of our minds. So yeah, I love that. Well, Kazu, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, why don't you just tell our uh, listeners uh, where they can learn more about your work? Yeah, thank you. So the East Point Peace Academy is online at eastpointpeace.org. And people can uh, look up my book at healingresistance.com. And uh, what you have in store for us, if you could remind us as well for the work in progress that... Uh... Yeah, so I'm working on my second book called Fierce Vulnerability. Um, who knows when it'll be out, hopefully fall of next year. Um, but we're also working on building a network called the Yet to Be Named Network, uh, which is working at the intersection of climate justice and, and racial healing. And that's a lot of where a lot of this fierce vulnerability work is, is being put into practice. So I, would uh, I have heard that about well. that. And I'm yeah. be very interested to see what unfolds. I, I'm, I'm going to be following that and uh, supporting your work in that uh, yet yet to Thank be named. You. Yes. And people can find information on that on our website as well. On the East, East uh, Point Peace Academy website. Exactly. Yeah. The network is a collaboration between many different organizations of which East Point is only one, but there is a little bit of information on our website about that. Great. Okay. Thanks again, Kazu. Take care. Thank you so much. Bye. That's our show for today. The Lotus and the Fire is produced by Deep Streams Zen Institute. The music is by Lou Richmond. Greg Wirth edited the audio. I'm Joseph Bobro. To learn more about Deep Streams, visit our website, deepstreams.org, and subscribe to the show so you can listen to new episodes as soon as they drop. Go to anchor.fm slash joseph-bobro to subscribe from your podcast platform of choice. To provide feedback about the show, contact us at bobro at deepstreams.org. And please leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. Thanks. Until next time, 